When October of 2019, after about five years of coordinated strategic requests, pleadings, and multi-point arguments, and me being outnumbered four to one, our family finally got a dog. Luna, yes, one of those kind of dogs. An Australian Labradoodle, I think there's a picture, right Zoe, yes. <laughs> one of those, not good for much, but super cute, right, so yeah. Uh, for many years, my family talked about getting a dog and begged me to get a dog. They researched, they looked online, they had ideas about what a getting a dog would be like. Things like, just imagine dad, endless snuggles, a joyful companion, a trusty friend. Oh, and Luna's all of those things. Like, she's really great. I think she might even like me the most. <laughs> but there's more. In order to get Luna, thank you, Zoe. That's so distracting because she's way cuter than the sermon. Um, in order to be prepared for getting Luna, we had to build a fence. I had to build a fence. <laughs> um, uh, we had to buy some new shoes and now have some new couches because puppy phase. Uh, I, I still need to replace some trim in the house where Luna needed to gnaw on it for some apparent reason. We had to figure out a walking schedule and feeding routines and coverage when we were at weekend soccer games since all of our kids play soccer and we like to ski and now they wanted a dog on all top of that. And none of us regret having Luna. She's really great. Did I say that already? She's super cute. Um, but we had to prepare, and we still have to adjust our lives in order to live with Luna. Luna's advent or arrival required us to change, demanded that we change. And this advent season, we're rooted in the gospel of Mark. And last week, we looked at the promise of good news, God among us, his kingdom coming, the promise of rescue and redemption. And what Mark is declaring is that the promise of God has begun in the advent or arrival of Jesus. But what does that mean? What did the Israelites in the first century who were living under the Roman oppression, what did they imagine that the fulfillment of God's promise might look like? What did they think it would be like when God came to dwell among us like it was promised in Isaiah and other prophets? Well, we actually have quite a few writings from that time period, and as you might expect, there was a spectrum of thoughts, not just one thought on what this would be like. But one of the consistent hopes and expectations that we read about in those years leading up to the birth of Jesus is that people expected some sort of political and military victory against Israel's oppressors, whoever it might be, because in that time period, there were the Persians, there were the Greeks, and then there were the Romans. It's like, whoever it is pushing us down, we expect that when God comes, he's gonna do some house cleaning, and he's gonna lift us up, and we're just gonna rock. And knowing these assumptions were in play, and also knowing that these assumptions were misplaced, because the advent of Jesus showed us a completely different definition of power and authority and love and truth, God sent someone to prepare the way so that people who had certain assumptions about what Jesus would be like 
might be prepared to receive what Jesus was actually like. This process of challenging our expectations and of questioning our view of reality and even questioning our values as individuals and societies, it's all part of what Advent is actually about. We all have assumptions about what the future is going to be like and who Jesus is. And we all have opinions on like how Jesus ought to run things, right? But Advent encourages us to revisit the scriptures and to hold them up next to our hearts and our longings and our expectations. Now I began this message with a silly example of dreaming of a future with a dog. When we finally got the dog, it was great. But there was preparation involved and adjustments to make, and it wasn't exactly, exactly how we had imagined. Advent is a season of preparing the way. As we turn to the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see that God sent someone to prepare the way. That person was John the Baptist. We're going to be focusing on Mark chapter 1, just two verses, verses 4 and 5, but I'm just going to read the, the verses 1 through 5 so you get the context, and if you weren't here last week, you kind of get the, the fullness of the text. And here's how it goes. We have this passage about John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness and baptizing people. And so I'm going to grab my Bible, which is down here. I'm going to read it. This is Mark 1, 1 through 5. The beginning of the gospel, remember last year we, le- we learned that that word means good news. So the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So we have this passage about John showing up in the wilderness, preaching and baptizing, calling people to repentance. Mark writes the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Notice what, before we hear anything about John, we get these quotations, and it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, make it ready, make his path straight. Now here's the interesting thing, is that Mark says, just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then he goes on to quote this quote. The interesting thing is, is that this quote isn't all from Isaiah the prophet. The second part, the good news of God coming and the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight his path, make it ready, that that part's from Isaiah 40, verse 3. But the the first part, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, that is not from Isaiah. In fact, you already heard that read today because it was from 
our scripture reading, which was from the prophet Malachi. So what is going on here? Did Mark misquote his prophets? Did he get mixed up? Is this a mistake? I don't think so. Mark, like all Jewish people over the age of 13, had his Torah memorized and knew his prophets. I don't think Mark made the mistake. He knows that his quote is not all from Isaiah, and he knows that his original audience knew that it all wasn't from Isaiah. And what this is, is an old-fashioned rhetorical device. By adding different words to his quotes, he's emphasizing them. By not getting them wrong, he's just quoting something else for emphasis. It's kind of like dad songs, at least that's what I do, is I take a tune that my kids know and then I add my own words and it becomes a mind worm for them because they know that that's the wrong word and dad thinks he's being funny. But anyway, so, it, it, so, so Mark is doing something similar and other people that wrote in the first century and earlier often use this kind of rhetorical device. I'm quoting Isaiah, you know that I'm, you know the tune, but you know that that's not from that tune. So now it's standing out and bugging me because it's from Malachi. What does that mean? Why does he do this? Because by mixing Isaiah 40 and Malachi, you get a more holistic picture of what about's to come. Isaiah 40 is all about the good news that God has promised to come and rescue, and Malachi is also about God coming, but it includes a warning. God is not, basically what Malachi is saying is God is not your kindly grandfather when he shows up, you know, with a cane and he's got candy for all the kids and everything's fine, overlooks everything, just like, oh, your parents will deal with discipline. We'll just, you know, hang out over here. Yes, I've got more candy. Um, that's not, the Malachi's saying like, yeah, God's not like that. And, and so God is, is kind and good, but he's also the God of the universe. Like he's holy and he's just. He's full of love and because he's full of love, like love can't overlook just, injustice. Like if you love someone, and they're being oppressed or, or bullied or beat up, like you don't just like, ah, that's fine. Like you want to rescue and you want to put things right. That's this love that God has. And that's part of the promise of him coming is to put things right. So Malachi speaks of a forerunner, a messenger like a prophet who will come and prepare the people's hearts for the arrival of God. Now, here's an interesting thing. In that time period, when a king would come and visit people, like let's say there's a new king in Washington state and the king was gonna come to Bellingham in the first century, like whatever, imagine with me. Uh, what people would do is they would clean the streets and they would say, okay, God's coming down railroad or something like that. And so all the faces of those buildings would get a fresh cleaning and fresh paint and everything would be perfect on the outside to, to receive the king. And they would do more than that. They would make sure that the gardens are all spiffed up and colorful and weeded. Um, they would make sure that there was no unsavory people. They would literally move their homeless out of the way. They would make sure not only that their convicts were locked up and secure, but that any ex-convicts well, we don't know what they might do. Let's put them in prison just for the few days that the king is here. 
and anyone that might be suspicious, they would also lock up and put away. Their preparations were all exterior, all to make a good impression on the king or the emperor who is coming. But God, before he comes, he doesn't seem interested in any of those things. This is a God who would actually be concerned more with our heart and our motives than the outside. This is a God who would actually visit prisoners. I mean, Jesus always hung out with those tor- uh, sorts of people. He didn't, he didn't say, you need to lock people up. He said, I'm gonna go visit, and he calls the church to be part of that solution. This is a God who would spend time with people in ragged clothes, just as, he much, just as much as he would spend time with the well-to-do. We sometimes forget that. Um, a lot of times you hear preaching, well, oh, Jesus would always be with, with the, the homeless or would always be with, yes, he was a lot, but he was also with, with rich and influential people because they need the gospel too. And so it makes sense that the messenger of God would talk about the state of people's hearts and lives rather than their clothes, rather than their outward appearance or even their religious involvement. And Mark says that this prophet that God sent into the wilderness to prepare the way is John the Baptist. Can you think of another time, put your biblical thinking cap on, can you think of another time that God raised up a leader to lead people in the wilderness and proclaim the word of the Lord? Moses in the Exodus was a figure like that. And in that story, God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, and then he promised them a land of their own where they could live and thrive and find rest from their enemies. A land where they could serve God and he could bless them so that then the world and their neighbors around them would see that blessing and say, I want in on that. I want to know the God that you worship because you worship God and he blesses you, and I don't see you killing your children and... um, being unethical, being unjust, like, tell us your secret. (laughs) It's amazing. But notice that God, in that story, in the story of Exodus, didn't lead the people directly from Egypt right to the promised land. In that story, he has a waiting period where they wander the wilderness for 40 years, which might be a metaphorical number, it might be an accurate number. It's basically code for a special number, and it's a long time, at least a generation. You see, while the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, they had picked up all sorts of unhealthy ways of living and unhealthy ways of seeing the world. It's very likely that the Israelites had learned different theology, had picked up a little bit of worship of Egyptian gods and goddesses on the side while also worshiping Yahweh a little bit in a new and creative way, that there was syncretism going on. It was likely that the people of Israel had grown accustomed to living under the kingdom of Egypt, but now that God had liberated them to form a new kingdom under his banner, they needed to learn what that was all about. The people of Israel in Egypt, 400 years in slavery, had learned how to survive in a land of oppression. And for any of you out there that declare or think of yourself as a survivor, maybe an abuse survivor, or survival of really hard childhood circumstances, or any other circumstances, 
If you consider yourself a survivor, you know that you've had to sometimes learn to be hard to survive. That you've had to cut off maybe parts of your heart in order to be strong enough to survive. And being street smart and looking for advantages over others might have served you well in survival mode, but it isn't the way of God's kingdom. So you see, the Israelites had generations of trauma to heal from before they could become the types of people who were generous and free and open to fully trusting God. There was shame of slavery to put behind them before they could come to see themselves as made in the image of God, let alone see other people as made in the image of God. See, sometimes we read these Bible stories and we don't consider these real people but we know what slavery does to people's self-esteem and their view of themselves and other people. We know what oppression does. We know what trauma does. These are human beings in these stories. And God's got to work with them to help prepare them for the promise. And so God prepares them by sending them into the wilderness, to the desert, where they're stripped of the trappings of Egypt, where they had to rely on God literally for their food and water. It was in the wilderness that they were confronted with their own sin, their own tendency to rebel. It was in the wilderness where they learned about Yahweh and his particular character and his particular ways that he wants humans to love each other and to love him. They learned his particular ways that he wants human societies to form that are centered on God and his way of being human. And so you can see a pattern here, right? God's promise of a new land, and then he sends them into the wilderness with the prophet Moses, who will help prepare them to enter this new promise. And a generation later, when the Israelites were coming out of the wilderness, they're about ready to enter into the promised land. They had another leader in the wilderness named Joshua. And and do you remember what river they crossed to enter the promised land? Starts with a J. The Jordan River, that's right. Okay, let's put these pieces together. And so now Mark is talking about another promise, a bigger promise than promised land. He's talking about God coming to dwell with human beings on earth. And he's sending a prophet into the wilderness to prepare the way like Moses. And he's having people pass through the waters of the Jordan, like Joshua, through baptism. That's interesting. And what's fascinating is that the Israelites as a rule, like there's zero history in the Bible or of historical documents outside the Bible. There's zero writings about Israelites getting baptized. Israelite people didn't get baptized. There are all kinds of ritual washings that they practice to symbolically cleanse themselves from ceremonial uncleanliness and all sorts of things like that, but zero about baptism. In fact, the only evidence we have of baptism in any sort of relation to Israel is when a non-Jewish person, a a Gentile, the way the scriptures describe a non-Jewish person, is when that type of person wanted to convert to Judaism. And they would do a sort of baptism where they cleansed themselves, dipped themselves, washed themselves clean of their, maybe their former allegiances to other gods and goddesses or their former sin or whatever. And they said, I'm washing myself clean, just like 
Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea when there was an exodus and became the people of God. So now we, as a Gentile, are going through the waters, making ourselves new and becoming part of this community. That's the only baptism we know of before Christian baptism. And Israelites, as a rule, did not do it because they're already in the family. They're born into it. Now here's the shocking thing about this story in Mark's gospel. The people coming out to the wilderness to be baptized by John are not Gentile converts. They're Jewish people. They're Israelite people. You know, in Jewish law, like in the scripture and then writings based on scripture, uh, the practices, there are all kinds of ways in Judaism to repent of sin and to be made clean and to be made new. There were prayers and sacrifices one could make and special days where priests made sacrifices on behalf of the community or individuals. There's a whole system set up to enact forgiveness of sin when people repented. That was there. But what Mark is describing is something so significant, something so new and significant is going on that it required a new practice. And not just a new practice, but a new practice connected to the old story of God. Mark and Jesus and this whole thing is not saying like, throw out the old stuff because there's something new's happening. But he's saying this new thing is happening and it's deeply connected to everything that's happened before. It's one story. Which is why, if you were wondering, at least in this congregation, almost every fall I make an effort to always be preaching through the Hebrew scriptures. Because even though we're New Testament, we're on this side of the cross and the resurrection, we are rooted in the whole story. Just as Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea at Exodus, just as they passed through the Jordan on the way to the Promised Land, so now, in a supreme act of humility, Israelites from all over the land were coming through to pass through the waters of, of baptism for repentance of sin, to prepare their hearts for the coming of God, confessing their sin, displaying humility, not perfection. That's what God wants. I don't know what you've been told. He doesn't care so much. I don't want to say he doesn't care. He's not judging us based on our behavior or our track record. It's our approach to him. It's our humility. If we are prideful and demanding, I don't know that God can work too much with that. But if we are humble and honest about where we're at, God can work a whole lot with us. And here what we see are not perfect people coming to be baptized, but people humbling themselves. As we consider that Advent is a time of preparation both to celebrate the arrival of Jesus, but also to anticipate his return, we would be wise to consider the state of our hearts. In Mark's story, it was the people of Israel, the ones who were supposed to be closest to God, the one that had access to the scriptures and the prophets and all of the religious stuff that you could do. It was those people who were the first to come out and confess and be baptized. I don't know everyone in this room, but most of us, as I look around, most of us in this room are part of a church, part of this church. And, and many of us have been baptized. Many read their Bibles on some sort of regular basis, right? Like we have access to the story of God. 
And in worship, which you're here right now, um, and I've, most of you have been to worship before, um, you are hearing the word of God, you're singing about the word of God, you're involved in prayer and sacraments. Like, we are the insider people. But that doesn't mean we're exempt from preparing for Jesus. Advent isn't so much about preparing for like a quick adjustment in our behavior. I think that's a lie that we often tell ourselves. It's like, you know, I'm pretty good. I just need a little help. Like if I just could figure out this one bad habit or this one attitude, you know, I'm pretty much there, but I just, just need a little tweak, a little self-help, a little whatever it is, a little encouragement. Um, that's not what Advent is about. Advent is about recognizing that the way of Jesus, what, what the scriptures call the kingdom of God, it's like a completely different way of living. That's quite a shock to the system. God's kingdom comes with like a whole economy. And when I say that word, I don't just mean dollars and cents economy. I'm talking about like an atmosphere, like a way of being. It's a way of operating that is inherently in opposition to many of the structures and customs and ways of thinking that many of us, me included, just accept as like, that's just the world we live in. That's how I navigate this place. The attitudes and assumptions put forth by like our culture about things like, like power and sex and money and integrity when it's good for us, but not necessarily, you know, if it's not. Um, things like nationalism and violence, attitudes about marriage, acceptance of greed, these things simply will not fit in the kingdom economy when, when it comes in its fullness at Jesus' second advent. Now, I use the illustration of getting a dog earlier and how the good news of Luna's arrival um, required a change in thinking and behavior and practice, right? I'm not equating getting a dog to God's kingdom, by the way. But the kingdom of God breaking in is more than just kind of a one point of change in our lives. It's like a whole system. Advent causes us to look closely at how we think and what assumptions we might carry about the world and, and, and then to see if it still makes sense, these assumptions that I have about the world and how it works, do they make sense in light of who Jesus is and what his kingdom will be? Rather than looking at it about getting a dog, it might be helpful to look at it as a sense of just what's in the air or the atmosphere. So you might say, uh, I've not lived in Bellingham my whole life, but I'm from Western Washington, and one thing that's almost like clockwork is I know I can pull out my long sleeve stuff uh, and like long, long pants when I want to. Oh, actually, before 25, there was just shorts, like year round, but anyway. Um, you know, in October. October is the month that you typically do that, and I've got my routine where I kind of put the garden to bed, and I take the outside furniture, and I sort of stow it because it's going to be October. It's going to be wet and raining, and you can say, like, that's just how it is in Bellingham. Like, October's when you do that until this year. In the first few weeks, it was like 80 degrees during the daytime, and you could be one of those people who say, like, well, it's October, and I'm going to wear my puffy coat, and I'm going to wear it because I've been waiting to wear my new flannel, and I'm going to wear it. Well, you could do that, but you're not living in the new reality that it's 80 degrees today, and you're going to be really hot and uncomfortable. 
And in a way, that's, that's sort of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. It's gonna be a new reality where the old ways of kind of navigating our life, just, you could try, it just won't fit anymore. And what John is doing, and, and what Advent is about for us who are on a different side of this equation than John was, is how am I getting acclimatized now to being a generous person, to being one who, who would actually lay down maybe my reputation to not be right in order to, um, to give grace to someone else? to not take an advantage over someone when no one else would know, when no one else is looking, I could, I could fudge this tax return or I could you know, make a little on the side. You know, how would it look to start living in the new reality now before it actually comes upon us? That's, that's what it's called to be the church between Jesus' first advent and his second. A lot of times we hear about repentance of sin as kind of this basic turning from sin and then turning toward the way of Jesus. And usually when we think of sin, think of Bible stuff, stuff like that, we think of like, oh, okay, I, I know what those are. It's like lying and cheating and addictive behavior and sexual stuff that gets us all trapped and greed and stuff like that. Yeah, I get it. That's what I'm supposed to repent from. I'm not saying you're not, like that's, those are things that trip me up, and so you, we, gotta, we gotta figure out how to navigate those things, right? But I want us to remember that the good news of Advent is that Jesus came and died to wash us clean of those things, not to merely change our behavior. He didn't send John to make people perfect so that they would somehow be good enough to be ready enough for God to come. Do you understand that? Like, Advent isn't about you getting perfect enough to like, okay, now I deserve to celebrate Christmas, or now I'm gonna be ready for Jesus to come back. No, the preparation of John and of this Advent is to just take an honest look at ourselves, to realize afresh that we individually, and we as a church, as Lettered Streets Covenant Church, and then we as a human society, worldwide human society, we need rescue. Like we need salvation from our own destruction. And this is only good news because Jesus has come and because he's taken our sin on himself and because through his death and resurrection, he has made a way for us to live in a new creation, to have a place in his coming kingdom and for that, and all of this preparation, and John the Baptist calling us to repentance, that is good news, because it is not dependent on your performance. Lord, we thank you for, um, we thank you for this word from your servant Mark, who brings us Advent preparations in a different package from the other gospel writers, but no less potent. We pray, Lord, uh, first of all, just to praise that we thank you for receiving us where we're at, for caring more about the state of our hearts than our track record. Lord, for anyone here who is feeling um, outside of the realm of <laughs> redemption, God, I pray that you would break through those lies and that you would show your, your grace knows no bounds.
Lord, for those who feel trapped in a way of being or a way of thinking, I pray for breakthrough and rescue. I pray, Lord, by your your Holy Spirit that you would give us grace for ourselves and grace for each other and help us to longingly look forward to the, the kingdom of God coming in fullness someday and to desire that kingdom more than the ways of the world are even now. Amen.